Welcome to the show, everybody. As I continue to experiment, the new thing I'm going to be trying with the show is I am going to add some bonus content, some commentary, keeping you guys up to date on kind of some of the new ideas I'm tinkering with and that sort of thing, give you maybe a little more context for uh, what's going on behind the scenes of the podcast, but I'm going to do it after the show so you can opt out of it just like uh, bonus content in any tv or movie or whatever and then i i don't have to have a big long thing in the beginning that some of you rightfully uh you know want to get straight to the interview or whatever and uh so yeah that's how we're doing it from now on so at the end of the show i'll be uh giving you a couple updates on a couple things that have been going on including uh, talking about this positive optimistic uh shane this person that i sometimes forget exists uh that that's been taking over my uh my life of late and some some comments on that and what some of that's about and talking a little bit about perception and consciousness and some productivity tips that i've been implementing in my own life that maybe you'll find useful as well. So stay tuned for that at the end of the show. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am in somewhere in between Denver and Boulder-ish. <laughs> Erie, Colorado. Uh, okay, Erie, <laughs> Colorado. I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Colorado University, Denver. Is that how you say it? There, no, it's University it's, of Colorado, Denver. Why is it CU? I don't know, because it doesn't make any sense, because they keep changing things back and forth <laughs> i i would stop and start this intro over but now now i want listeners to understand how ridiculous it, does, it is it that, doesn't so just say see you denver everybody yep. anna warner is, yes. dr- is is joining me today thank you anna for being on on the show and sure. um i you were on stand-up science as well i keep on wanting to call you warner you must get that sometimes <laughs> yes i hope i'm not the only one um but it's warren er yes um someone who warrens um <laughs> So, uh, let's uh, give people a little bit of a, a background. You you gave um you gave a, a wonderful talk during stand up science. Thank it was you. such a fun crowd. They were like applauding for data. Yeah, they stuff. were it they was... were super interested. <laughs> they were super into uh, data and scientific method. And yeah, they they were they were right there with us. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so first off. Feel free to repeat any like this is the listeners weren't weren't at stand up no. <laughs> science so so pretend I didn't see anything okay and let's just uh, give give people a little bit of your background sure so um, I uh, grew up here in Boulder Colorado I was an undergrad at um, CU Boulder I did my uh, PhD at Washington University in St Louis and then I completed a 
um, postdoctoral fellowship at uh, Harvard in the human evolutionary biology department. Um, and when I went to graduate school, I got interested in human biomechanics and locomotion, um, and particularly interested in the human pelvis, um, because it was kind of the confluence of a couple of things for me. I, uh, When I got to graduate school, I got pregnant with my first kid in the first year of graduate school, which um, makes it more complicated, obviously. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I had gone to graduate school because I wanted to go to South Africa and excavate, and that's sort of the, the, the thought I had in my head of where my field research was going to go. Um, obviously, that was less realistic um, with a newborn baby. Sure. Um, and at that time, I was sort of floundering to try to figure out a topic of research, and um, my former advisor had just been hired by WashU, fresh out of graduate school. His name's Herman Ponser, and I think you've met him before. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's been on the podcast. He's been on Stand Up Science. Exactly. He is a real, real standout guest. He so. is a standout, standout guest and standout guy. Um, so anyway, he showed up and he opened up a biomechanics lab in the basement of our building, and I went to hear him give a talk on locomotor energetics. He had done a lot of research on um, the effect of leg length on energetics, and when I was sitting there listening to him. I thought it was all really cool and really interesting, and it was a way I hadn't thought about asking questions about human anatomy before through through the lens of biomechanics. But I, of course, immediately had this idea in my head that women are less um, have are, are less efficient in terms of walking and running than men are because we have a pelvis that has to be um, adapted for childbirth as well as for bipedal locomotion. And the reason that I had that story in my head is because that's the story that's been told in anthropology since. The 1950s. That's just the you know the the hand endowed wisdom, right? And this idea is called the obstetrical dilemma. Um, at any rate, I listened to his talk and I knew that I was kind of floundering for a topic of my own, and so I went in to and talk you're to pregnant him. Pregnant at and the I, time, you're like, <laughs> well, I just I'd had the baby, so oh, okay. so I had gone so through. Just... Well, I I had I had gone through the childbirth um, stuff, although I'd ended up having a C-section in the end. But so I'd been through all of that. So of course, okay. maybe even because of the C-section, that idea of obstetrical dilemma was even you know, more present in my mind. It's also, I've heard the same thing. It's, <laughs> it's how I would have, I would have uh, assumed that was the case as well. Yeah, right. It just makes you, um, It we're not just in anthropology is this an idea that's um, sort of omnipresent, but, but it's filtered out into sort of our thinking generally about childbirth and why it's so hard in humans and so forth. So, um, you know, it's an idea that's percolated beyond academia. Um, but at any rate, I went in to talk to Herman about, uh, you know, uh, this idea. And he just immediately said, is this something you want to do as a thesis project or a dissertation project? And I thought, yeah, that would be good because I don't have a <laughs> dissertation project right now. I've kind of, you know, changed my course. So anyway, so I, so that's how my research got started on this. Um, and the, the sort of short of the, uh, idea of the obstetrical dilemma um, has to do with the fact that humans became, um, our lineage um, evolved bipedality or walking on two feet about 7 million years ago. Um, and for a, a long period of time, for about 5 million years, uh, our lineage um, was walking on two feet, but maintained a brain size that was still relatively similar to modern chimpanzees. It was increasing a little bit, um, but but 
not at the same way it's increased since the 2 million year mark. And at about 2 million years, all of a sudden encephalization, which is brain size relative to body size, really takes off and humans start getting bigger and bigger brains. Um, but this big brain then leads also to a infant that has a really large head. And the idea is that the pelvis of females is a compromise between being good at walking and running and the way the obstetrical dilemma is usually defined. Good means being efficient in terms of the metabolic energy that it costs to walk and run. Um, but that pelvis also has to be able to get out a big brained infant. Um, and, and that seems to be problematic. So yeah, when you uh, so you had a uh... A lovely diagram <laughs> that now we're just going to have to kind of explain right. to uh, to listeners about the head size compared to. I was I was kind of shocked by this. Really? I mean, I I already knew that the the human head is is this enormous thing to try, right. to, try to get out. And that's <laughs> and it was my understanding that that was one of the big constraints. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that. If, I mean, if you look at the, the diagram that you were showing it looks like the other primates have it pretty easy like it's just slipping right out of there so so this diagram was you just have like the circle which is the size of the head and then another circle which is the size of the pelvis and all the other primates have this head shape that is a a small a much smaller circle than the right. circle of the pelvis and then humans have it looks like this impossible right. thing it's like <laughs> a larger head size than the than the shape of the pelvis it's almost like the exact same size right exactly so yeah so that diagram that i showed it's showing the other great apes so all the other great apes like orangutans and chimpanzees and gorillas do have a capacious birth canal, meaning that it's, you know, there's plenty of space basically for the infant to pass through without coming up against the bony constraints of the wall of the pelvis. And yeah, in humans, that is not at all the case. So that diagram showed the pelvic inlet um, versus the size of the fetal head. And the fetal head can be larger than the size of the pelvic inlet. Um, but actually, even the pelvic inlet is not the most restricted part of the pelvis. So as you sort of go down through the pelvis, the, um, the what they call the midplane, which is a little bit farther down, is even narrower than the um, inlet. And so, yeah, so you can definitely have instances where the fetal head is literally larger than the space it's trying to squeeze through. And the way in which we kind of deal with that is, um, number one, there's there's ligamentous stretch that occurs um, during uh, childbirth. So, the, so the, the pelvis sort of relaxes a little bit. And so there's a little bit of give there, um, but also the fetal head can mold itself because the cranial bones are not fused. And so, you know, all these babies born through vaginal birth come out with cone heads because their head is literally being molded, you know, sort of squished through that passageway. It's but, like when you see an octopus go through like right. a small pipe or something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or like I think of ferrets, you know, how they like can get really, really long and skinny and they just kind of squirm their way through these impossible little passageways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the same thing. And that's why these babies come out looking like weird aliens. Right, exactly, exactly. Um there are some other primates that do have a really tight fit between the pelvis and the head, like squirrel monkeys are a classic example. So we're not the only primate that has this difficulty, um, but the reasons, or at least the apparent reasons why we have this difficulty, you know, 
appear to be different, which is bipedality, um, and then the sort of massive size of the the fetal head. But it's also true, I mentioned in the talk that not only are humans' heads really big at birth, but human bodies are really big at birth. The baby's body is actually pretty big. And so not only do you have to negotiate the head through, but you also have to get the shoulders through. Um, and so shoulders can get stuck in the birth canal as well. So there's, you know, maneuverability with one shoulder up or one shoulder down. But um, yeah, hmm. but both of those things can be problematic for sure. So, so, uh, so there's this, uh, what's the idea called again? The obstetrical dilemma. I better write that down. <laughs> uh, say it one more time. Obstetrical dilemma, or sometimes it's just called the obstetric dilemma. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, this was what was already kind of in my head and it seems intuitive. So what's, right. what's wrong with it? So what's wrong with it is that it postulates a trade-off, right? Between two um, things that are uniquely human and really important to our adaptation, right? One is that we're bipeds and the other is that we have big brains. Um, and so the idea is that the female pelvis has to deal with both of these issues. And so its shape has to be compromised between the two of them. Um, there's clear sexual dimorphism in the shape of the human pelvis. So um, men have narrow a narrower pelvis in all aspects of the birth canal, not necessarily always narrower at the top of the pelvis, but where, where a baby would have to get through they have a narrower pelvis. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Hooray. <laughs> <Right. laughs> that, I, I, I know. Hooray, right? <laughs> Ooh, I have a narrower pelvis. Right. So the idea has always been that that narrow pelvis um, doesn't have to worry about the childbirth issue, right? So it's optimized right. for locomotion. And the fact that the female pelvis has You're to maintain... You're using quote fingers. I know. Quote fingers. I, I love optimization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the female pelvis, obviously, uh, the, the idea was that it can't be totally optimized for locomotion because that would conflict with the needs of the, the birth, right? Um, the problem with that idea is that um, if, if it's efficiency that's being sacrificed by having a wider pelvis, we have, we have sort of a basic model of how that might work in terms of the function of some muscles around your hip called the hip abductors. Um, and these hip abductors are important for keeping your pelvis level when you walk and you run. When you walk and you run, there's long periods of time where you only have one foot on the ground. And so if that one foot is on the ground, these hip abductor muscles on the side, on the leg that you're standing on, they have to contract to keep your pelvis from dropping away from your standing leg. And um, the idea- People can feel this. They with can. A little, uh, tell people how to do it at home. Okay, so if, if you really want to know where your hip abductors are, you can stand up and you can put your hand on um, the side of your hip, sort of up towards the um, top portion of your pelvic blade. I'm going to hold on. And <laughs> right here? Yes. Uh, so uh, so a, a little bit lower, like if your hand is flat on the side of your hip. And then you're going to um, pick the opposite foot up. Actually, yeah, that's my bad foot. Let's okay. do the other one. So wait, so you want to stand? So if your hand is on your left hip, then you have to stand on your left leg. So pick up oh, your right foot. Okay, I want. Or do to the reverse if you want to stand. Other. Wait, wait. <laughs> no, no. Okay, this go. is what I'm doing. All right. It's right too bad that we didn't just video me trying to figure out the difference between right and left and understand simple instructions. Sorry, audience. That would have been awful fun, but you'll just have to imagine me looking like a buffoon. Right. All right. 
Um, so when you pick up your left foot, the muscles that are underneath your hand on your right side are going to contract. Yep. And when you put your foot back down, they're going to release. Mm-hmm. And so you can feel that contraction and release on your standing side because those muscles are activating every time the other foot comes off the floor to prevent your pelvis from dropping down towards that leg that's lifting off the floor. Mm. And the reason why that's important energetically is because it allows you um, to move forward without your pelvis going drop, lift, drop, lift, drop, lift with every step you take. So you can have the image of, I, I gave the reference of the catwalk on Milan, you know, how all the models walk with their pelvis really dipped from one side to the other. Um, that's not a very good way to walk mechanically. It's not It's not metabolically <laughs> efficient because every time you're... <laughs> So, Sorry, so models. All, all, these, all these models trying to look sexy are just looking like they have some deformity or something. Yeah, they're, yeah I think it, it would be hip abductor weakness. And <laughs> maybe we need to start a GoFundMe page to like, you know, bring, <laughs> bring uh, you know, whatever uh, stronger, physical therapy yeah. to, the, to the hip abductors. Right. If any of your listeners are runners, they know about their hip abductors because every time runners, not every time, but lots of times when runners have knee pain, a, a lot of times that has to do with weak hip, hip abductor muscles because it's not controlling um, the placement of your leg uh, when, you're, when you're running. So that's an issue uh-huh. too. So people who have had physical therapy for knee pains might be familiar with their hip abductors. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. so so they're super important for controlling your balance um, in the, you know sort of side to side as you walk, and they're super important for preventing your center of mass, which is sort of situated you know right in your uh, right below your belly button is sort of your body center of mass. And um, if your pelvis is dropping and lifting every time you step, that your center of mass is going down, up, down, up, down, up. And that's metabolically expensive to, to do that because every time your center of mass goes down, you have to lift it back up with muscular work. So the idea behind this obstetrical dilemma and a wider pelvis and the hip abductors is that a wider pelvis makes your hip abductors have to work harder in order to keep that pelvis level every time you step. So that's the sort of the basic biomechanical principle behind this. Um, And the reason why, in theory, uh, women would be less efficient in terms of walking and running economy if they, if they have this wide pelvis for, for childbirth, right? So that was the underlying notion. The problem is that we didn't have any data actually assessing that, whether or not that was true. <laughs> so um, the, the research that I did basically tried to isolate the function of those hip abductor muscles. And so in order to do that, you can collect data on um, how people are walking and running. So you can collect motion capture data to, to see how their bodies are moving when they walk and run. And from those data and from data on the forces that they're putting into the ground, which you can measure through a force plate, you can calculate the um, joint moments at every joint in the lower limb or the torques. Torques and moments are synonymous. Um, so you can figure out how much force those muscles are actually having to produce every time somebody steps. And then you, um, I also got lower body MRIs of all of my subjects. So I could actually measure their actual you know, pelvic measurements. It's the pelvis is frustrating because it's really hard to measure from external markers. There are some places on the pelvis where you can kind of feel where the bone is, but you know, we all have different levels of fat and skin over our pelvis. And so, you know, trying to get a really accurate, accurate measurement of the bony pelvis on the outside is difficult. And there's aspects of the pelvis that are, that are strictly internal, right? So you can't, there's no way to measure them from the outside of a body. So, so when someone's saying like, that, "Oh, she has child rearing hips," they that's have no not idea. Nope, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's not a thing. The external measurements of your pelvis 
may or may not correlate well with the internal measurements of your pelvis. And of course, it depends how much fat you're carrying on your hips. It depends on, you know, I mean, it depends on a lot of things in terms of our visual interpretation of what a wide pelvis looks like versus what's actually going on internally. Okay, so we can, as a society, yes. stop saying that. <laughs> Yes, we can get rid of, she has childbearing hips. We probably hips. could have dropped right. it without that knowledge. Right, it would have been okay with me, but yeah. <laughs> I actually had a student ask me about that. I was a um, teaching assistant for an anatomy class once. So this was gross anatomy for medical students. And they absolutely, somebody, I, for, I forget what the context it came up in was, but we were doing some dissection and they were talking about childbearing hips. And I was like, uh, um, no, 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 <laughs> let me explain to you. And then they got like a 20 minute diatribe about the evolution of the human pelvis from a whole bunch of different angles and their eyes glazed over. And sure. I'm sure they retained everything I said, but <laughs> very important for their future medical training. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, I wish that happened to everyone that, that made comments about child rearing. I hips. wish they, so too. Immediately followed by an eye glazing 20 minute Right. Evolution lecture. I think that I think we would get rid of it really quickly if we could place. do that. Yeah. <laughs> so at any rate, yeah. these data uh, then could be used to figure out how hard the hip abductor muscles are working. And actually, um, the the third piece of data that you need to do this is you need to collect um, oxygen consumption data, so you know how much energy it's actually costing someone to walk and to run. So by measuring the amount of oxygen that their muscles are using in order to generate force, you can get a, you can get a pretty good measurement of of their energy. So by combining the force data, the anatomical data, and the oxygen consumption data, I can I could look at, you know, what are the hip abductors actually doing in men versus women? How does it relate to pelvic width? Um, and the short story is there's no good correlation between the width of your pelvis and the amount of energy you use when you walk or you run. And that's, of course, contrary to the findings or to the assumption of the obstetrical dilemma model, which is that, that there's some negative um, metabolic price to having a wider pelvis. Hmm. BetMGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 Moneyline wager on today's game. If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. BetMGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA, and there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. If you were to go and... Uh, study the pelvis of Olympic athletes or something like that, you, uh -huh. would, you wouldn't find some consistent finding in, in the way that, you know, everyone talked about Michael Phelps's odd kind of body shape that right. made him an excellent swimmer. There, there wouldn't be anything like that going on pelvis wise with a, with a sprinter. Yeah. So, um, it's interesting when you think about runners, because there is data that shows, um, that, a female, um, uh, you know, very competitive uh, runners tend to have a pelvic shape that looks more like um, males. And 
forgive me because I can't remember exactly which measurement they were taking if they were all from, they were probably from external measurements, but that those measurements looked more similar to males than they did to female non-runners. Um, but the question about that is, is that body type being selected for because it's good in some way for running or is it being selected because coaches think it's good and therefore the people that they're encouraging and sort of trying to bring on their teams have this this sort of body shape, right? And so I haven't seen any good you it, it's the it's the child rearing hips coming back to That's right, again. exactly. Now it's the track running exactly, hips. Okay. exactly. So I'm not, you know, there are other reasons in terms of the obstetrical dilemma. Like I said, the model has been sort of explicitly stated as a um, locomotor trade-off in terms of efficiency versus child rearing versus um, childbirth. But it's possible that there are other ways in which, you know, the pelvis having a super wide pelvis could be a problem for, say, knee injury or other stuff like that. Although I don't think the data convincingly support that either. Um, but those are things, you know, that that haven't been tested um, rigorously yet, and those aren't what was built into the original assumption of that model. So it doesn't mean that that we can't continue to investigate how pelvic width actually affects aspects of locomotion. It just means that that sort of strict um, efficiency argument is not accurate. Hmm. So, and there's actually some interesting research coming out. Um, making the argument that a wider pelvis might actually be good for efficiency, like if you're carrying loads or other things like that, um, those data, you know, are, are worth are worth looking at and thinking about. Um, but yeah, to my mind, we still need to do a lot more research before we sort of figure out the details of that. Well, I'm going to I'm going to take a chance and say a bunch of things that I might be just totally wrong. But I, okay. another way of of thinking about it is is that is it maybe just a complete misunderstanding that that like being better or faster and like better at track is some uh, evolutionarily beneficial thing for humans anyway i mean we certainly haven't been selected for say our biceps and right and other I, I mean this is like uh, just an I, I know like every guy wants to like be some big, strong, the rock guy or something like that. But like you put rock against the chimp, a uh, chimp and right. they're, they're gonna, he's going to get ripped apart. Right. And that, and the <laughs> chimp's one of the more adorable things right. out there. Um, but, but um, it, in, in the same way that, that you look at like a, say a, a bird that might a male have all these like ridiculous feathers and everything, but the the female is looking kind of might look bland by comparison. But really, that's just like kind of the uh, why is it, like, like that's a that's that's the most practical right. um, strategy, and it's it's the, the the males having to compete that drives them to have these kind of other ridiculous traits. So, do you think that maybe there's something like that going on? Yeah, with human evolution. So, what I think is that our um, I use the word optimum in quotation marks <laughs> earlier, and the reason um, that I get a little bit frustrated that we're that we're always thinking about features as optimized for something is that we have a certain cultural context for what we think is good and bad, right? And like you just said, is is speed the most important thing in the context of human evolution? I would argue probably not. Humans are not, compared to other mammals, we are not good run. Like we're not fast runners, right? Yeah, we're terrible sprinters. We, yeah, we, we, we just are Decent not going to get- endurance a, runners. We're so Herman really was good endurance runners. Yeah. yeah, we're very good endurance runners. So the question is, is our um, anatomy optimized- for speed 
is our anatomy optimized for endurance? Is our anatomy optimized for some combination of those, depending on the environmental circumstances? And I would argue the evidence that we have right now indicates that we're better optimized for endurance than we are for speed. And if you look at I mean, there's there are not enough data points to make any sort of conclusive argument about this. But if you look at these sort of really, really long endurance runs that are happening, um, there are women who are finishing first in a, you know, in a pack full of men and women. So the question about, you know, is the is yeah, is the human body optimized for um, for the track athlete versus the person who can just keep running for a really long time? So um, the idea behind why humans are good endurance runners has to do with uh, with the theory that humans evolved um, capabilities to be persistence hunters, which basically involves tracking an animal, usually a usually a, a larger male animal, maybe that has a big rack of horns, like a, like some kind of antelope with you know big horns, that um, you can basically run to exhaustion during the hottest part of the day. Humans are unique in the fact that we're hairless, that we've got sweat glands all over our bodies, and we can um, you know use evaporative cooling to keep ourselves cool even during really hot parts of the day. And on the move. And on the move, exactly. And we can carry, you know, um, uh, potentially carry water with us so that we can continue to be hydrated during the course of this um, persistence hunt. Whereas this, you know, large antelope that you're hunting, especially if it's, you know, a large male with a big rack of horns is going to tire more quickly and is eventually going to overheat and then just collapses in exhaustion. Um, and because mo- yeah. most things need to stop to pant is my understanding that right. it has something to do with the way something's constricted when they're running. Or right. Something like so there's a coordination between um, the movement of their their locomotion, so their their um, their step frequency and how they're how they're um, locomoting, and actually the the movement of their guts back and forth, and the movement of those guts actually causes their lungs to um, to expand and contract in, in a certain rhythm based on their based on their locomotion, and so they can't. Um, they can't effectively pant and cool themselves as they're running. Uh, so, so that's problematic. And of course, humans humans can. We have all kinds of other ways to cool ourselves down. Um, and 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 our breathing isn't um, directly correlated with our with our locomotion. So the combination of these factors allows humans to run for a longer period of time. It's not like we're faster than the antelope, but we can track them if they get ahead of us or whatever. And we basically run them to exhaustion to the point where they. They can't get away, and then you can get close enough to to you know kill them and, and get the meat. So- it is crazy to me <laughs> that it, I mean I I've been doing this couch to five k uh-huh. app where where you run for like a minute and a half, right. and then you have like a minute long break or whatever, and right. that minute and a half is uh, jog is trying for me right. sometimes Torture, to, yeah. <laughs> to think of our of our ancestors running marathons in the in the middle of the day under the hottest possible right, uh, right temperature right i mean you know i'm a terrible runner it's kind of hysterical <laughs> i i all the pe- i feel like all the people around me at every lab i've ever worked at are like marathoners and really good and i'm just i'm just not a good runner i i can go out for a jog and i can run you know 4 miles or whatever like not probably at an embarrassing pace, but that's okay. I'm all right with it. It's just about getting the activity. Um, but, but it is interesting, this idea that, you know, under the right conditions, I mean, humans can just kind of keep going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can't keep going and going. And and some of these ultra marathoners who just, I mean, it's bananas to me that they'll run for, you know, 50 miles or it's, it's crazy. So 
So, uh, so this is a, a big part of um, some of these some of these differences that we're seeing is that really sprinting wasn't a, a huge part of our past in the first place. Uh, quite, I mean, po- certainly that's possible, right? I mean, it's always hard to say because our our lens for looking at evolution, we get fossils out of the ground, right? We get we get fossils that that uh, fossil bones. And we have comparative examples to look at across the primate world. And then also sometimes there are appropriate comparisons among other mammals that we can sort of look at and see how does um, physical form influence locomotor capability or other stuff. But we don't, we never get the time machine that allows us to go back and actually see, oh, how often did they sprint versus how often did they endurance run versus how often were they just walking a really, really long ways, you know? so we always have to take with a grain of salt that our interpretations are based on physical anatomy. The thing that I like about doing biomechanics research is that that it's an empirical way to test assumptions about what anatomy does and doesn't do. And we can do that in modern humans. The only bad part about that is that the level of variation that we see in modern humans is as far as we can test the variables, right? So pelvic width, we have some, you know, fossil ancestors like Neanderthals and even um, potentially there's there's some debate about like Homo erectus and whether or not they had a wide pelvis or they had a narrow pelvis or it was dimorphic at this point because we've got fossils that kind of indicate both things. So it's a little bit confusing. Um, but some of those pelvis are really, really wide and, you know, leg length might have dif- been different. And those might be sort of outside the variation that we're going to find in kind of a most human populations. And so the very edges of the boundaries are difficult to test, but at least we can make a direct correlation between some aspect of performance and anatomy. And that I think is is a fruitful, um, fruitful path to, to pursue. So, yeah. So kind of speaking of going far back in time in our uh, our ancestral environment it is a very different situation the environment that we find ourselves in now i mean i don't it not not all of our ancestors were persistence hunters right. but pretty much all of them were certainly more active than i am <laughs> and, um, and, probably <laughs> very likely maybe there was like a couple kings along the way or right. something like that, having grapes fed to them or something but right. but um it, what's going on with cuz i i look now and childbirth now looks like this incredibly dangerous thing that it i mean we we have these all of modern medical knowledge and and it's still you're you're being rushed into a hospital and you know everyone's on their on their toes and making sure that everything goes correctly and and sometimes there's complications and how is this a new modern issue? Is this how in the world were our ancestors just squatting out children right. on, on the natch? <laughs> it, I, yeah. it, it seems like such a foreign um, thing compared to what our current system is. Right. So I think um, from from an evolutionary perspective, birth has to work. Right. If if our method of birth didn't work for the vast majority of our evolutionary history, we wouldn't. Be here, right? Or the individuals who, where pelvic shape was really so constraining that the baby couldn't get out, or the baby was, you know, grew so big that the baby couldn't get out. Those 
people died, right? And so evolution, um, natural selection would act very strongly on aspects of morphology that prevent birth from happening because that's that is the evolutionary game as far as natural selection is concerned, which is your reproductive fitness is how many surviving offspring do you have that reach reproductive age? And, and you know, the, the goal is right to um, have more of your genes end up in future generations. And that's how populations change through time. Um, so if if you're not good at doing that, if your pelvis is too narrow or whatever, you're going to be selected out of the gene pool pretty quickly. Um, so I think it's pretty clear that birth had to have worked pretty well um, for the majority of our evolutionary history. That doesn't mean um, that every single, you know, um, mother had an easy and, you know, oh, plop, there's the kid, no problem, whatever. Evolution doesn't care whether or not the process is painful or hard. It just cares that it works and right. that mom and baby come out of it on the other end without injury, right? Or without any kind of, you know, major injury that's going to impact their future reproduction. Um, so in terms of what's happening now, I think there are a number of things. It's too bad that evolution didn't come up with a way to make childbirth just the most pleasant, right. <laughs> wonderful. I mean, wouldn't that encourage more, you know, <laughs> more breeding and I, more offspring if it was if it was just pure bliss? Right. I think evolution has worked very hard to make sure the act of making the child yeah, is enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but once it's in there, you yeah. know, it, this is a little ridiculous. But um, when I was pregnant, you know, I've had three kids when I was pregnant, each time I had this moment where I start getting bigger and bigger. And I think to myself, there are only two ways this baby can get out. And neither one of them sound real good to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, but at that point, you're stuck. What are you going to do? Right. <laughs> <You know>? So, <laughs> um, but at any rate, in terms of what's happening in more contemporary populations, so I'm talking about sort of since the advent of agriculture, when, you know, our, our diets presumably changed a whole lot from our hunter-gatherer past, right? And um, we can see some really strong effects on um, diet and infectious disease on the skeleton of like early agriculturalists when they transition from being hunter-gatherers. So people tend to get shorter, people tend to be less healthy. Um, and so there's a trade-off between sort of having a constant food or, or, or a reliable food supply versus sort of variety of food and living in close proximity right. with other people and with, you know, lots of livestock and stuff, there's more infection to spread around. So there's this trade-off between, you know, being able to to sustain a large population, but also the individual health. But now of you're people. sustaining on just corn. Right, exactly. Like, and, and you may have a period of extreme famine where your crop fails that year and, you know, you're in trouble for a year, you might survive it, but that if that happens during a period of your individual growth and development, that's going to affect your skeleton as well. So, so since the advent of agriculture, I think that there's an interesting argument to be made that there are are, are sort of two competing factors that are going on. One is that um, nutrition is can be good and can be bad for women, and that can mean um, you know having to starve for for a year because your crop not not for a whole year but being being low on food for a year because your crop fails but that even leads up to contemporary times where we know that people get a lot of calories but they don't always necessarily get the diversity of of stuff that they need in their diet and even extending to things like episodes of rickets um that occurred you know in sort of um 
early industrial uh, cities where people aren't getting exposure to sunlight. So there's a whole variety of sort of nutritional aspects that play into skeletal growth. So one possibility is that depending on the environment going on in, in a particular culture at a particular time, women might not actually be reaching their sort of pelvic, genetically determined pelvic size, right? That there that there might be a um, problem with growing the pelvis that you were genetically meant to have because of these environmental factors in your diet or, or other aspects. Um, and then the second part of that is that the size of the fetus is also really important in terms of how difficult childbirth is. And um, we know that there there's definitely a trend towards increasing fetal size in, in Western countries, and we're getting a lot of calories um, during pregnancy. And so babies are, are getting bigger on average. And uh, the larger your baby is, the greater potential there is for some kind of problem. And if those two things happen in confluence with one another, where as an individual woman, I have, you know, don't grow to my, you know, my skeletally determined pelvic size um, because of poor nutrition during my growth and development. And then I end up in a society where I'm being overnourished during mm. pregnancy and I grow a really, really big fetus. That's a problem, right? Mm. And this is a working hypothesis. There isn't um, data sort of testing either aspects of this in a significant detail for us to say this is actually what's happening. Um, but it's an intriguing hypothesis that I think is a, is a good way for us to continue to look at this idea of why childbirth is difficult. Yeah, that, <laughs> no, that that is it's that's really fascinating, um, right. and hopefully not the new obstetrical dilemma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hopefully we don't run with it before we have all the data. But the other thing I was going to say about um, childbirth being difficult, and now I'm going to use my air quotes again, is that a lot of the um, obstetric problems that occur actually have nothing to do with the size of the pelvis or the size of the fetal head. Like actual obstructed labor is, you know, a fair, if you look at like a, a World Health Organization graph of like the causes of maternal uh, mortality and morbidity, what they call cephalopelvic disproportion, which is where the head is too big to fit through the mother's birth canal, is actually a fairly small part of why women die. A lot of um, problems happen because of hemorrhaging. Um, there's, you know, there's a whole suite of things that can occur during childbirth that can put mom or baby's life in danger that have nothing to do with her pelvic shape. So that's one thing to consider also is that like in this big evolutionary story that we've told about how childbirth is so difficult, like is that even the primary issue that most women face? And I'd argue it's not, um, even with, you know, potentially higher rates of that in modern societies, if those hypotheses about the pelvic size and baby size turn out to be supported. Um, and the other, the other thing, what's the other thing? I lost my train of thought. Oh, well, it'll come back to me. The, <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing is probably that doctors are doing Thank this you. Like, yes. better safe than sorry kind of approach. Thank to you. <laughs> you knew where I was going. <laughs> that is the other thing, which is that we tend to correlate C-section rates with difficulty during labor. Um, but I think there's pretty strong evidence to suggest that C-section rates are done for a whole host of reasons that have nothing to do with maternal or fetal safety. Um, and that sometimes they're, they're done. just fun. They're, oh, let me tell you how much fun they are. <laughs> they're just a blast. <laughs> they're you. awesome. Every, everyone loves a Everybody good loves a good C-section. Yeah. No, it's uh, uh, when I had my third one, because I had had two by C-section before, and I was contemplating whether or not I was just going to schedule a C-section 
C-section for the third one or if I would try to do a vaginal birth. And I had a very, it was interesting, I had a very um, contentious conversation with my first doctor about even me even considering trying to do a vaginal birth after having had two cesareans. And he thought I was insane. And it, I mean, this tells you something about the power dynamics in situations like this where he basically, you know, was scaring me with stories of mothers he'd saved through C-sections and blah, 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 to the point where I left the doctor's office in tears. And when I left, mm -hmm. I sat and thought to myself, I was like, I study this stuff. Like I study <laughs> human <laughs> evolution, the pelvis, childbirth. Like I know what I'm talking about. I know the stats. And yet he was able to put down that notion that I had in my head that this was a, even a possibility so quickly. And I left that doctor's office and I found an amazing um, practice where basically I had a conversation with my doctor and she said, these are the pros and cons of trying to do vaginal birth. These are the pros and cons of trying to do a C-section. I'm comfortable doing either one. Mm -hmm. And you need to decide which of these look like the best option for you. Oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> like actual yeah. information without judgment on which <laughs> to base your decision. And I think that I think that my first experience, you know, probably happens with some frequency. It, it does. So. My my parents, I was a C-section uh -huh. and my mom was told just very straightforward from the very matter of factly that once a C-section, always a C-section. Right? And um and she didn't want that to necessarily be the, be the case and wanted to look for other options and it was right. part of uh, why they my family moved when I was really young right uh, moved I don't know why they didn't just find a different doctor but like <laughs> they I'm may leaving not have this been, state there might not have been a doctor I mean this is not an uncommon experience that women um, who live in more rural areas uh, the the hospitals will absolutely not allow you to try for a vaginal birth after hmm. an original c-section because of their you know, fear that there's going to be complications and you're too far to be able to get to the hospital. So they just won't let you do it. You you mm. can't find a doctor who will allow you to do it. So I don't know. You should ask your mom if mm. that's why you guys moved because they wouldn't let you. What about, so we don't have time machines, but, but, <laughs> but we do have all these different cultures and mm -hmm. hunter-gatherer-ish mm -hmm. tribes that mm -hmm. still kind of exist right, a, a little right. bit, um, dwindling. Uh, but how, what's what's going on with their... Births. As far as I'm aware, we don't have really good data on what happened. I mean, uh, I I um I don't know what how often maternal and fetal mortality occur. I'm sure they occur sometimes, um, but I don't I don't know of any numbers that indicate one way or another, which is obviously a hole in our research. But it's also um, you know a challenge to ethically ask people to <laughs> let you <laughs> sort of into that very personal aspect of their life. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure what the barriers are um, in terms of well, I guess this getting is, comfortable. This is again, my, my obstetrical dilemma. That, <laughs> another one that I have in my head is that for some reason or another, I have in my head that our ancestor, uh, our ancestors had higher rates of infant mortality. The um yeah so so yes the rates of infant mortality are definitely um higher so so the it's it's harder to get a fetus to be like to to get them to towards five years of age and sort of once they hit five years of age they tend to you know 
be be okay, you know, right. that's sort of like the the, the magic mark. Um, and things like infectious disease are really problematic. I think those infant mortality rates are not, you know, not necessarily related to um, aspects of birth trauma. They're just I related see. to um, the fact that that if you get an infection, you don't have antibiotics, you don't have vaccinations right. to keep you from getting infections, et cetera. So yeah, infant mortality historically up until sort of modern medical times has been much higher than it is now. Although it's interesting that in the US, um, fetal mortality is increasing as opposed to decreasing hmm. um, because of our lack of support, I guess, for <laughs> for um, pregnant pregnant women. Well, that is troubling. It's very troubling. Yeah, it's really upsetting. We're not doing well in terms of in comparison to other um, sort of industrialized countries. Do you happen to know this probably isn't necessarily your It's a area, little outside but, of my wheelhouse, but, but yeah. Do you do you know what other countries are are doing that is potentially creating this difference? Um my my guess is that part of it has to do with um, having socialized medicine. And so when there's no cost for you to get prenatal care, the chances of you um, uh, being diagnosed with any potential problems during your pregnancy are higher and the chances of you getting treatment are better. And also, um, we have a very highly medicalized um, practice for birth where, you know, I, I'm not. I'm in no way advocating one way or another for home births versus hospital births, et cetera. I think that there's, you know, pluses and benefits, and it's absolutely, um, you know, dependent on doctors and women's decisions about these things. Um, but we do have a very highly medicalized uh, approach to um, childbirth, and and these can be problematic too. I mean, like we said, you know, C-sections. They they are undertaken because they're considered sort of a more controlled environment, but there are all kinds of risks associated with any major surgery, right? So mm. that's a major abdominal surgery. So there are risks induced by um, by too many interventions um, that that can that can cause problems as well. So I think mm. um, you know it, it's interesting to think about our our model of birth as as necessitating medical intervention when the reality is this is a normal human thing that your body does right <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like um and so again it's not that that um i'm advocating in any way one way or another in terms of what people should do i just think it's worth thinking about um is our system that we've set up sort of optimized for uh maternal health and for fetal health or is it more optimized for sort of the medical industrial complex right, <laughs> you know what right, i mean <laughs> right, right. and i mean i don't want people to fall into the naturalistic fallacy no, too much either no but, i agree but um at 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 the same time i do think when it comes to things like this and and certainly pharmacology and some other aspects where mm -hmm. i do believe that science will absolutely get there right eventually right i, I, right. I believe that there will come a time when um, when a hospital birth will be hands down the safest, right. best way to go about it. And I just don't think that we're quite there yet with, with, uh, with some things. Right. And, um, yeah, I had um, I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine um, who uh, was a graduate student um, at the time I was there, and she had been studying um, a rural population. Uh, now I'm going to blank on where she was doing her work. Uh, 
anyway, <laughs> um, but but she she was studying she was studying birth and she was studying um, you know sort of culture um, cultural behaviors around birth and and um, assisted midwifery, which is also a really important part potentially of the evolutionary story. Which there's a there's an argument about the fact that such a fun word. To I know say midwifery, too. right? It's awesome. <laughs> Um, so, so one of the arguments is that, that human births really need, uh, humans really need assistance during birth because of the orientation in which the fetus comes out, which is usually with the face facing backwards, which means mom can't actually grab the baby and help assist it out. So that means another person maybe needs to be there during birth. So that's a, that's a sort of different and interesting idea to, um, to think about. Um, but but she came back and, and you know, we, we were talking about childbirth. We both had kids. And we had a really interesting conversation about how she said, you know, I, I do recognize that there's over-medicalization and that there are interventions that occur that probably don't always need to occur. But there are absolutely women who I saw go through horrible situations or even die for something that would have been, been taken care of very easily in a hospital setting. So it's not an either-or you know, equation. It's it's more complicated than that, and and people should be aware that it's more complicated than that. And I mean, I had all my births in a hospital, and I'm glad I did because my first one ended up being an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's not the right solution for everybody. So right. yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, um, all right. Well, I have a I have a related question. Probably before we get to that, I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Did you have one in mind? Um, I do. I want to plug um, UNRWA, which is United Nations Relief and Works Agency um, for Palestinian refugees um, in the Near East. So wonderful! Yes, that's a all good right. charity. That's to a give worthy to. cause. Yes. Um, all right. So uh, speaking of um, the future of medicine and science and hopefully we are inching toward progress Mm -hmm. science seems to do a nice job of correcting itself and figuring (laughs) out most of the times yeah (laughs) sometimes it takes 50 years but we but we work on it (laughs) yeah there's there's been some horrific uh, wrong directions along the way yeah um but uh but but i don't know i i i certainly have um, a fair amount of hope that a hundred years from now our medical technology will be advanced quite a bit, mm-hmm. and we sometimes talk about oh what what is it we've we've had a couple of guests talking about what what's it called snipper or what what's what's the gene I'm manipulating oh uh, uh, CRISPR uh, CRISPR yeah CRISPR uh-huh. <laughs> um, and and altering genes and uh-huh. and um, potentially uh, see I'm it creeps most people out to hear about this stuff uh-huh. for me i'm real like pro super uh, super baby oh you I, are <laughs> i can't wait for super babies to happen i think they're they are inevitable. They, they did happen uh, in china yeah, right <laughs> yeah and i i mean i don't think that there's any any way of stopping them i right. think that any parent is going to be like oh yeah i don't want this this and that defect and then also while you're in there <laughs> uh, make them a little smarter too oh boy and, and yeah it creeps most people out but i think it's maybe the natural progression of things so say people start going this do you think that with um or even without it do you think mm-hmm. that because we have c-sections because um potentially birth with some medical help mm-hmm. uh might eventually make births easier and easier do you think that head size might naturally 
get just get gigantic start getting, <laughs> even start getting larger i mean i know evolution takes some a, typically a much longer time than right. say 100 years right but uh give it thousands of years uh and with some modern medicine it because it seems like that's a that's a pretty is what's happening right now a, a limiting factor of the is the birth canal would if evolution could uh-huh. make our heads larger or keep yeah. us in there a little longer to develop a little more, would it if it weren't for this pelvic constraint? I don't think so. Don't so, think so, no. So, number one, I think um, if if C-sections were all being done because of pelvic constraint, then yes, that in an evolutionary sense, that would be a release of one of those constraints, right? Which might mean that women who previously would not have succeeded in childbirth can succeed in childbirth and therefore more variation in pelvic shape would be okay, right? Because they're still reproducing and having offspring. Um, but because I don't think that's what's happening with the majority of C-sections and the major- majority of sort of maternal mortality, not that there's not you know, some percentage that that occurs with, but it's small. It's like, I I forget the exact numbers, but I think it's, you know, like around 10% or less like worldwide. Um, So I don't think that that's the primary constraint where our medicalization is actually releasing that constraint. Um, And then in terms of like, can the baby just stay in there forever and like get a gigantic, gigantic head and grow as big as it. not I for mean, forever of, but you know <laughs> pushing the boundaries uh, yeah all, all of the um oh I'm, I'm i'm blanking on the name of the silly publication um that uh oh anyway when, when you see like the pictures of the aliens oh or yeah yeah the inquirer or something yeah, yeah the inquirer <laughs> um and uh which our president sometimes references as right. a legitimate news source. It's an important um, news source. <laughs> um, but, but you see like the picture of the alien in there. Right. And I'm like, this actually makes sense based on this evolutionary <laughs> model where, where you get this larger and larger. I know that brain size isn't everything and right. doesn't necessarily determine intelligence. Right. But, uh, but it certainly, it, it has some different... In, in, and species variations, certainly. right? And uh, and and I look at these alien pictures. I'm like, yeah, you have this kind of fragile body because they're not needing to. Uh, they're living They've this got sedentary their, lifestyle, right. zipping around in their UFOs yeah, or whatever. That's right, their exoskeletal, you know, <laughs> yeah. armor that they take everywhere. But they <laughs> they've evolved this bigger and bigger brain right. that that seems intuitive <laughs> to me that it would that it would go that route. Right. So so the the two things. Uh, that are wrong about this <laughs> are number one, that um, it appears that gestation length in humans actually isn't really dictated by sort of um, necessarily by the size of the brain. It has to do more with m- probably mom's metabolic capacity to continue to supply that fetus with everything that it needs in order to to keep living inside her body, right? I mean, it's, it's an extension of her of her for until birth, right? And actually even after that, if you're nursing, it's still an extension of you in a certain way, but not as directly. And so um, in terms of the metabolic capacity of an an individual woman to just sort of keep growing a bigger and bigger fetus, there's there's probably a ceiling where mom's metabolism just can't keep up. As I'm sitting here going like, ladies, just a few (laughs) more months. (laughs) It'll be 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 fine, (laughs) right? No problem. (laughs) No problem. Um, And then the other reason why I think sort of thinking of 
increasing brain size um, as sort of a um, optimal outcome of natural selection, I think goes into this idea that that we as humans have because of the way in which we've sort of conquered our environment, right? In terms of basically giving ourselves a very um, basic, basically all of our cultural innovations allowing us to sort of live anywhere, to, to make billions of us to sort of take over the planet in a lot of senses, right? That it's this idea of sort of directed evolution where, of course, it's on this trajectory. So why wouldn't it just keep going on this trajectory? If brain size is big now, wouldn't bigger brain size be even better, right? And and so I think um, that idea of sort of directed or progressive evolution is is not accurate because evolution is always... Uh, subservient to the environmental conditions that you're in right now. And of course, humans alter their environmental conditions a lot. I mean, we've been, we're sitting in a climate controlled house right now, you know, so so we have some control over uh, that. Not, not to brag, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Sorry, sorry for those of you who are not. Oh. <laughs> um, but at any rate, I, I think, you know, the combination all of those hunter two gather yeah, All my hunter-gatherer listeners out there on their Yeah, <laughs> or the people stuck under the bridge in Texas, or, sure. oh my gosh, sorry, not to get political. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's, there. yes, we manipulate our environment, but um, but we're not actually sort of um, select, at least not yet, we're not selecting on ourselves, unless we start using CRISPR to start selecting our genes. And, right. and, and can we figure out which genes do what, right? So mm-hmm. that's the other. Um, and not only that, but now there's all this really interesting new research about your your phenotype or the your your body your physiology is not just dictated by the DNA that resides in your cells but there are these secondary factors epigenetic factors mm-hmm. that influence how your DNA is expressed so even if you could manipulate a fetus's DNA to optimize for something that you thought you wanted there's still there's in still this another old prenatal environment right? <laughs> that hasn't been manipulated right yet, right then, well and so prenatal environment is very important and developmental environment mm-hmm. is very important there's all kinds of ways in which that can actually change the way in which your DNA functions because of those environmental influences so hmm. well it's maybe complicated then you the, maybe you go the other way then you you, you crisper after the fact after right you <laughs> out of there and then you start crispering around but you can still have epigenetic effects that affect you even during childhood so yeah i don't know how we're going to work this it's going to be difficult well we'll get to it we'll work on uh, it we'll we'll keep (laughs) tripping away there's no Um, ethical problems associated with this whatsoever so (laughs) so uh, speaking of the future how, how about let's let's reel it in a little bit okay let's talk about um your your career, your your five years play, your oh, or, or further trajectory. What what are you hoping to pursue um, coming up in, in the in the short to distant future? Whatever, I'll let you pick. Sure. <laughs> so, I think the five year plan is a um, fairy tale of academia. Maybe it's not for some people, but for me, it is. And I'm just going to be honest and admit that what I think happens is you do a study and your study answers some of your questions, but it never answers all of your questions. And you go, gee, well, what's going on there? And then you start to ask new questions about the part you couldn't figure out from your previous study. And that ends up rolling into five years worth of work. So in my mind, that's how five-year plan works. So the stuff that um, I'm interested in, in thinking about now is um, I'm, I'm interested in continuing to explore how um, 
the shape of the pelvis, the length of the limbs, the orientation of the femur, um, the placement of the foot in the ground, how all of those things interact with one another to actually allow humans to balance themselves in the side to side direction when we walk and when we run. Um, Because there hasn't been as much biomechanics focus on that aspect of walking and running. And it's really sort of you know, unique to bipedal species, right? The fact that we have to either continuously be balanced on one foot or the other, and we don't get very many times where we're on Mm -hmm. two feet. And we're certainly almost never on three uh, limbs at one time, hopefully, unless you've had way too much to drink at the bar and you're crawling across the street at the end of the night. Um, So I'm really interested in pursuing that avenue and trying to sort of um, piece apart, you know, how how much influence does how you push your foot off of the ground have on where your center of mass moves? And does that interact with other aspects of your, you know, pelvic anatomy, leg length, etc. So that's one project that I'm working on. And it seems like there's new tools being developed all the time. Herman showed me kind of that some of the when I was there, some of the uh, I don't think it was finished yet, but a mm-hmm. new lab that that he was working on building with some new fancy technology, and, and you oh, know cool. people people have seen the you, you mentioned the motion capture. People mm-hmm. have seen the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes. Right. We've, all, we've all seen the Gollum crawling <laughs> around, um, and and then you you got you got these sensors measuring pressures. You're doing right. MRIs on on pelvises that aren't. Uh, you made it sound like that. That's not a perfect situation at the moment something that might be improved upon in the right. future are there th- are there things like that that you're excited about yeah i mean there's um there are definitely techniques now um sort of like ways of of mathematically locating um the joint centers at the hip and at the knee so so using some of the motion capture system um, probably all of the motion capture systems at this point have sort of those mathematical models built in so you can instead of kind of guessing where the hip joint center is you can actually have people move their legs around and figure out where that what the point that um, leg is moving about is and that gives you a really good estimate of your hip joint center right um, so using MRI is is super useful using external measurements is hard if you can just you know sort of palpate someone's pelvis <laughs> I get to palpate pelvis <laughs> for a living <laughs> Tongue twisters. yeah right um, so MRI is very helpful, but obviously um, you have to then be able to correlate those MRI measurements with your placement of your markers on people when they're actually in the lab. So that can um, be a little bit challenging. Uh, but so, yeah, but there are cool, there are also really cool new techniques. Like there's this thing called XROM where it's actually motion capture, but it's X-ray. So you can see the movement of the bones mm-hmm. while people are moving. And so you don't need to put the little balls on people. You don't need to put the little balls on people. The problem with that is, of course, they're getting X-rays as you doing it so you can't um do it uh, a whole bunch of times and there's only certain areas of the body like no and there's only certain areas of the body that you can do it in I so see. like feet and knees you can get interesting stuff but i um don't think it's a great idea to x-ray people's pelvis over and over again they don't right. like that having their reproductive organs x-ray so much <laughs> so sure. so there are lots of cool new ne- uh, new technologies that are that are helpful in all of this but i think that the sort of the bigger picture question that um, biological anthropology needs to keep asking is, you know, we ha- we have a really fruitful field of excavation and study of fossils and looking at the morphology of fossils, which is super interesting and super important. We also now need to be able to correlate variation in morphology or shape, variation in shape with actual performance, right? And so that's, I think, where where my field as, as you know, anthropologists interested in biomechanics comes in is we can look at ranges of variation in anatomical features within living humans. And we can say, 
this pelvic shape helps do this, or this pelvic shape helps do that, or this leg length is useful for this, or, or you know. So, um, so extending that uh, analysis of the skeleton towards empirical testing, I think, is really exciting and interesting. Mm. And I'm also just um, interested in continuing an investigation about sexual dimorphism in humans generally, like um, differences between males and females in terms of body shape and sort of how they're correlated with one another. So how the shape of the sexually dimorphic shape of a female pelvis relates to the sexual dimorphism of the skull and other aspects. That's sort of a mystery that we haven't um, mm. parsed out very clearly yet. So. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you for joining me and My telling pleasure. all the listeners about your wonderful research, Anna Warner. <laughs> nailed it. You nailed it. And, Got it. <laughs> and, and thank you. It's not the hardest name in the world. It's, it's just, just that there's unusual. so many uh, it's so many Warrens yes, out there screwing yes. everything up. They are. Um, or Warners. Yeah. Out there. <laughs> And, uh, but yeah, this was a lovely conversation. So thank you. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll be with you. We'll talk with you more next week. Thank you. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, talking with Tom Volk with the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse in my hometown. We're talking mycology, talking about mushrooms, talking just generally, by the way, not, uh, I know a lot of you eager beavers out there are hoping for a big talk about psychedelics. We're going to touch on uh, psychedelic mushrooms a little bit, but more generally talking about mycology. It's a really cool, fun conversation. If you are interested in um, in psilocybin mushrooms, you can join me next January in Jamaica at Myco Meditations. It'll be the fifth retreat that I'll be there for, guiding people through, helping people out, doing some shows on off nights, and getting to know one another. It's just uh, me, you, and 14 other here we are, listeners. It's now about half full. We just put the tickets online and made them available. If you go to shanemoss.com, M-A-U-S-S.com, you will uh, find out more. Um, the uh, I just had the, the homepage revamped a little bit with, with some of the um, partner um, links and everything. And so I've been wanting to like I said last week in the beginning I, I thought it would be best to save it till the end of the podcast I've just had so many ideas on my mind lately and, and this thing how last year I, I had a I had a like good year of kind of personal growth through the summer and then on through the fall and the whole time I was like I should be telling my listeners about this because I, you know, whenever I'm depressed or whatever, I, I share that. And I think that's valuable um, for people to hear that, you know, they're not alone and having issues. And, and um, you know, I think it's just interesting to hear um, people being vulnerable and talking about real things. And But it occurred to me last year, I'm like, well, I don't uh, why don't I tell people when I'm in a great mood and feeling positive about things? And I kind of just put off doing that and, and never did. I, I've always just kind of 
not liked self-help things and maybe because I was depressed all the time and you have this kind of sour grapes attitude toward um, people <laughs> who you see doing well. Like, screw that person and, and all the things they have going for them. But, um, but I, I think that it would be valuable for you guys to know a little bit more about where some of my just personal insights that I'm having and some of the ideas that I've been tinkering with a lot lately um, and because it's happened again this year as soon as as soon as spring hit I started got over my a huge bout of depression and like I've been sharing I've been feeling really good ever since and I've just been learning a lot more and I'm the busiest I've ever been and man things are just kind of insanely busy not only am I busier than I've ever been but I've I'm like the most productive that I've ever been in my life and as I'm kind of chipping away at some things that I put off for many years uh, things are only getting busier and busier because I'm realizing all of these all this stuff that I've been avoiding that I'm that I'm now starting to confront and and so I thought I'd kind of walk you through that process and some of the things that I've learned because I'm sure to a lot of people that are say really high in conscientiousness um, a lot of this stuff is something that is maybe just came natural for them or they've just always seen life this way but um, maybe there will be some new insights for you but especially if you're if you're someone who uh, who's uh, a, a little tends to be a little more toward the depressed or anxious side or or avoidant like myself, or just often um, overwhelmed with a hopelessness or kind of this dread of what is the point of any of this and a hard time finding the energy or motivation to do anything. Um, I can, and maybe this is more for me than for you guys, because I, I feel like as I capture some of these ideas and as I share them, it it also gives me a little bit of a different point of view on them as I kind of, you know, I'll put this out and then I'll go and think about what I said later on and think about how I would have phrased it differently. And that, that will kind of open up another new world of perception. Um, and I've been thinking, you know, I really like exploring how, how fluid our, our perception can be and consciousness can be. And I've been really just kind of um, uh, since I since I kind of had a mental break two years ago, done on uh, partially by started ha experiencing anxiety and panic attacks for my first time, and then overuse of psychedelics during the filming of my documentary. And by the way, in case any of that stuff scares you, not that there's not reason for caution or anything else. There absolutely is. And my my story should be a, a, a good lesson about being um, perhaps too cocky or arrogant or thinking nothing's ever going to go wrong with some of these substances that have a ridiculous stigma. But some of what I went through, I'm getting a lot of clarity on now and um, it's really helping me understand myself and my mind and the human condition and life and just everything ecosystems evolution just uh, the the way in which the subconscious 
communicates with our consciousness. It's it's something that I kind of didn't indulge in these ideas for a couple of years and, and really have been pushing away any like big ideas out of my consciousness almost um, and, and staying with like the really hard science stuff and, and the more grounded ideas. And um, I, I had a couple things happen. So it, I, I, I've been thinking, I've just been thinking a lot more about consciousness recently. One, because I've, I've been coming up with some ideas and I have some projects. I'm not quite ready to share with you guys because I mean, I, I, I'm to the point now where I'm almost ready to share them. Um, which is why I'm teasing them. Um, but you know, I don't want to share that I'm working on a project and then have it not, uh, come, uh, you know, some specific thing. And then it's embarrassing if it doesn't come to fruition and sometimes puts unnecessary pressure on the process. And, um, but, um, I've been exploring some ways of, of connecting a lot of my kind of bigger ideas about consciousness and perception and um, some some making sense of some of the more confusing aspects of the psychedelic experience and uh, reframing them in a new way and just gaining some really interesting insights about life and, and putting them into practice and bettering myself um, with them. And I'll, I'll just give some grounded, pragmatic um, examples in a moment once I kind of set up where uh, where this is coming from. But but then there's just been things that have been um, coming into place. Like I'm doing this Port Elliot Festival in Cornwall, England. Uh, coming right up, if you happen to be in the area. It's almost like a... I, don't, I haven't been. I, I get the sense that it's almost like a family-friendly Burning Man type of thing. You know, the kind of like uh, for, for people that are... You know more toward the alternative or like new new agey side of things and free thinker free spirit types but also with a yeah you know, less of a party atmosphere more of you know wellness uh, emphasis on you know like doing different yoga activities and and like stand up paddleboard and stuff like that so a little more family friendly but that but the type of crowd you'd see at Burning Man just with bringing it, making it more, uh, yeah, family friendly, I guess. That's my sense of it. But, and then I am doing like a Burning Man type thing, Orzo, Ozora, I'm probably saying that wrong, outside of Budapest right after that. And that's a little more like the Burning Man party atmosphere is my sense of it. But anyway, in each of these, I didn't, I thought I was just coming to do my good trip show when uh, they reached out to me to do them. I thought that's what they were requiring about. And then I like went online and saw some of the description and, and it was like, Shane Moss is sitting and having a, a chat and panel discussion about consciousness and, and what psychedelics can tell us about what consciousness is. And, and I was like, oh, that's what I'm talking about, which is cool. That's awesome. Uh, I, I will get paid to go and do a really fun festival and um, BS about about consciousness. But since that time, I've been kind of thinking about what I am saying and what my uh, what I would like to talk about. What and kind of revisiting my views of consciousness. That um, sometimes my uh, when when I get into the bigger ideas, I kind of have these 
um, runaway um, epiphanies, or and there's no uh, whatever regulatory mechanisms in in my mind stop uh, discerning um, kind of the imagination and the kind of ethereal uh, uh, theoretical ideas and and um, and the more tangible world, and it it, um, it it gets a little too confusing if I if I start launching into like a little too much of a manic state that's when things start kind of coming in too fast and then if if i'm going through whatever other anxieties on top of that that blends into paranoia and and uh, it, it it can be an unsettling experience so i've been cautious about tapping into those um parts of myself but i i have been even though I've I've been feeling so good lately that I'm like, is this another manic episode? But I, it, it's been so long and so, and I'm sleeping the the same, and I'm I'm not getting any of the other stuff that comes along with it, the less functional stuff. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm maybe I'm just happy. <laughs> is this is this how people feel when they're happy? Um, because if so, I. I, I don't think that I have been happy in a sustained way since I was, I don't know, three or four years old. And, and this is like, and it feels very balanced. I'm having a lot of insights and creative ideas, but not letting it run away with me. And and um, and, and I'm going to be start sprinkling some of this stuff in over these podcasts i thought it'd be a good way to add some bonus stuff at the end and i i don't care if you're not interested the way you know it's at the end so you don't you don't have to listen i i don't blame you there's a million things to take in and and listen to and um if if you are much more interested in hearing what scientists have to say and and that well that's what this podcast is all about this is this is just a little behind the scenes bonus for you guys. I was doing this on Patreon for a little bit and um, and I just have such a hard time kind of getting started and doing things. I'll want to record something, but, but like actually starting, actually sitting down and hitting record is such a, once I get going, you can't stop me from blabbing. And that's like, that's kind of, how most tests and like you know getting started is is the hard part then you get the ball rolling you get the that momentum everything runs a lot smoother after that and so i'm already having and i i don't i put off these intros and outros forever too i'm often late delivering them it's why the podcast doesn't come out as early as in the week as i'd like it to sometimes um so this is just you know, if I'm already hitting record, it's easier for me to just do it within this. I am an insanely busy person right now, and I am working my butt off. But I also, at the same time, have all of these cool things that I want to express. And, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I should save that gem and wait for it to come out naturally. And I've been sprinkling a lot of some of my bigger ideas into some of my stand-up and especially stand-up science has also just opened up possibilities in my mind for what can be expressed and therefore what can be thought because uh, I think much of much of much of um, what the your inner worlds are delivering to your consciousness in the first place are 
based on criteria in the environment and as I'm creating an environment for myself where there is, you know, a, 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 frankly, just kind of a brighter crowd. I, I, you know, it always sounds a little arrogant to say that, but pe- people that are in the uh, in the atmosphere for hearing about higher concepts is all. I mean, there's plenty of bright people, um, you know, that are, uh, uh, there might be a genius in some drunken bachelor or bachelorette party at a comedy club, but the the atmosphere is such that you're there to turn off your brain and and not think about things and just have some goofy laughs and there's and there's value in that as well. So I, I don't mean it in like a one way is better or you know you know what I'm trying to say. I mean I mean I do tend to lean to think smart things are better than dumb things, um, but but it has as I've created because I I was kind of frustrated with trying to communicate more complicated ideas to you know make make them overly accessible uh and therefore watered down to a uh, comedy club audience uh you know i created this stand-up science for myself and now now i'm on stage i'm like well this is what you wanted you wish to be performing for a bunch of smart people now there's a bunch of scientists and people smarter than you in the audience that probably know a lot more about the topics you're talking about than you do so time to rise to the occasion and and it's uh within that it's opening up i i think allowing for my subconscious to uh deliver more complex possibilities to me um for delivery i i think that that all of us in the right context in the uh in our perfect uh, environment, um, you know, can can just operate at at higher levels of of uh, functioning if if given the opportunity to express that. And it's it's you know I think a, a lot of what is frustrating about life is when you um, feel misaligned with with that. You know, you don't you don't feel like you're in a area where you are able to express um, your interests or or, or show show your potential or they won't be appreciated and so uh so i've I've been cultivating that environment for myself first and foremost and and now trying to figure out well okay how do i spread this to others how can i make this um you know more of a community thing like um you know a a church has this wonderful social uh, experience for and community feeling for a lot of people and uh, you know, many of us are turned off by the, frankly, you know, nonsense stories usually, and and uh, and other things that come along with with organized religion. I'm not trying to shit on anyone or anyone's belief systems or anything like that, but but um, often, uh, you know, the scientific crowd doesn't have, or or people, I mean, academics have their uh, colleagues, but people that are just more generally interested, people like me that are reading books on their own and interested in these kind of ideas, sometimes don't have a ways of expressing them. And so I'm trying to think of ways. Uh, that's why I've been talking about maybe starting a forum um, for here we are, and um, uh, maybe have. It, I would love for stand-up science to have like some section after the show, have the show start earlier and have 
people be able to meet one another afterwards, you know, something like that, just so you, because I, I think part of the experience is it, it brings people a lot of hope knowing that there's other people in their community that are interested in, in uh, these ideas. I, I know a lot of people feel like they're just surrounded by a bunch of idiots. And I, I think a lot of that is just because uh, a lot of us are isolated and we're running into strangers on the on the street or we haven't seen one another in a while or, or um, uh, you know, social interactions are, are uh, harder or we don't have as much experience with them because we're kind of stuck in cubicles and sitting a lot behind um, TVs and computers and are a little more isolated and, and so you're bumping into people in the street or people you haven't seen in a while and you kind of do the really safe topics of conversation and, and you focus on those more accessible things and it can be frustrated that you have all these more interesting things to talk about. So I've been thinking about how to do that um, and and I, I still I still don't quite know. But here's what uh, here's some of the things that I've been thinking about um, recently. Just just real quickly, something that's been hand Something that's been helping me out lately um, is that as I've been taking better care of myself and as I've been just through absolute necessity of now being a producer of a show that involves quite a bit of administrative stuff and I'm, I'm trying to, if you're supporting me on Patreon or, or uh, doing any um, uh, like Libro.fm or great courses or anything like that, the, the uh, the money that I'm I'm getting it's it's not uh, um, you know I'm not it's not to build the trampoline park in in the backyard of, of my mansion you know I'm like grinding it out on the road barely getting by and 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 what money I do get from that um, I'm uh, using to um, to give to my assistant i'm trying to kind of build a team around this which is what it requires so i can be free to keep learning more things and have more of these insights and write more and figure out better ways of of communicating this stuff which is what i should be doing i i I frankly you know shouldn't be doing i've used the word frankly quite a bit on this i'm being i'm very frank today um i i you know i just it's good for me to be learning these skills and it's good it's really good practice for me becoming more conscientious and i'm happy to be learning it now but in the in the long run um a a lot of the administrative stuff that i'm doing um should should be delegated and part of it is i'm i'm kind of a stubborn person who um uh sometimes likes control and and to be in charge and gets frustrated and doesn't I have trouble trusting people and relying on people sometimes. And in my business, man, you can't just like kick up your feet and think uh, anyone's just going to take care of you. And uh, you have to be pretty pro- proactive. And so I've been doing that. And within that process, um, I, so here's some kind of really tangible ideas related to consciousness or or at least more, more um, certainly more practical ones that I've 
that I've been implementing into my life. And, and these are really some of the really grounded, um, simpler ideas that I've been thinking about. So hopefully I'll, I'll get into sharing more of the, um, more of the complicated ones. And, and I think they might be recording some of the stuff that I'm doing in the, uh, in, in those festivals that I, that I told you about. So, uh, there might might be an opportunity to see some of that. I'm also going to start trying to book um, some more guests related to some of the ideas about consciousness and perception and um, that sort of thing that I, I've been uh, working toward getting into. I, I haven't I don't talk tons about um, my biggest ideas of consciousness on the show because. I feel like we're still laying down some groundwork and, and getting down some basics. And I, I'm still checking my own ideas against, you know, people, people who, um, might, might know better about some of these aspects. And, um, so I've slowly started, I've slowly started sharing some of these ideas with folks and I'm, I'm pretty excited about some of them. But anyway, uh, so an example is I, I started, I was in St. Louis and doing stand-up science and uh, i mean i'm just getting such an education right now because not only am i i have a bunch of here we are podcasts in the bank but i'm also uh doing stand-up science which is sometimes completely different guests than what's on the here we are podcasts and and completely different subject matter and everything else so and and then i get in my car and I listen to audiobooks on Libro.fm offer code here we are and I uh, take my great courses thing and I'm just like I'm putting a whole lot of info I am I'm in a very intense um, <laughs> um, learning environment uh, right now that I have myself in and I had this guest on Tim Bono who wrote this book? I I haven't read the book. It's available on Libro.fm. Offer code here we are. By the way, you're supporting your local indie bookstore. You get to pick the local indie bookstore in your neighborhood that's partners with Libro, and it goes through them. They share the profits, and you get the first three months for the price of one. That one month free, or uh, that one month fee, goes to me and the hopes that you're going to stick around. That's their arrangement. So, uh, it kicks money my way and supports this show and what I do. But you can check out Tim Bono's book, When Likes Aren't Enough, A Crash Course in, in the Science of Happiness. So I saw his talk and I was there with um, uh, the the other comic uh, friend of mine, Dave Waite, a really funny guy who I used to live with and is way lower in conscientiousness than I am, which uh, who knew that was possible. Um, but he... What, one of the things that got brought up during the show was Tim was talking about the idea, and I'd heard it many times before, but I just don't... Uh, things like this always sound like really foo-foo-y to me until I hear them from a scientist, and then it gives that like stamp of approval or whatever that I that I need to like actually listen to, um, <laughs> to good advice. Uh, and he was talking about the idea of gratitude journals, and the idea of you at the end of the day you write down a couple things that you're grateful for and that kind of primes this 
uh, you know, you're, you're now reflecting back on how your day went and focusing on those positive things. But then you're also kind of giving yourself homework. Now through the day, your, your consciousness is going to focus more on things to mention in your, in your gratitude journal later on. Uh, you know, you're kind of, your your subconscious is primed in that way so it's it's having you focus kind of uh, without any effort or or control on your part to focus on some of those more positive things and uh and then i talked with another academic friend of mine who who was saying they uh, you know independent of any of this was saying they had just started doing a similar thing and and um with uh with writing down like three things that they had accomplished or something each day and uh and then my my friend I talked with my friend Dave on the phone and he said he had gotten this book uh, when likes aren't enough um and started doing the gratitude journal thing and he was talking about how it, it really helped him um you know kind of reappreciate uh, comedy in his career and I've been looking for that because man this this uh, this uh, this stuff that uh the entertainment business I mean it is such a foolish thing to get yourself into and it can be just absolutely brutal and soul crushing and heartbreaking and and uh and you can just get screwed over by so many different people and and there's just so many things that can go wrong with it and there's just nothing even resembling a safety net and um i it can just be a really terrifying existence you know when you're young it's new and exciting but uh, frankly it can be really really terrifying and and um and still is even, even now that i'm doing good i mean it's just there's just as much you know kind of negative things uh, pro- uh, i should say negative there's just as many problems arising um, for me as ever this isn't just the case that uh you know things are going better for me and that's i mean there's there's a lot of there's i i feel i'm feeling almost as many stressors as ever i do feel a little more aligned with the path that i should be on and that and that does make a huge difference i will say that but um it, you know just doing something that really suits me and and um is unique to my interest and my skills so you know enough people uh, mentioned this and i was like oh you know i'll start trying this a little bit and and i, I haven't even done that great of a job with it i've done it a little bit here and there and it's made a little bit of a difference and but what i what i did so i i'm a really avoidant person and i started I started using, um, I, I, I was like, how do I, I have all these like pain in the butt tasks that I'm so bad at just like responding to emails and like the little things like that are what, like I can come up with big ideas for, should, I, I should be really grateful because that's what a lot of people really struggle with. A lot of people would kill to come up with some like great show idea or, or premise for new jokes or, you know, what I like. Those are just a never ending supply for me right now. I, I go, I go through periods of, of drought for sure but my my uh achilles heel or whatever is just the day-to-day 
um, practicalities of attending to responsibilities are just an absolute nightmare for me. And so, uh, like, I was kind of using yoga to, when I didn't feel like going to yoga, I was like, okay, well, focus on, rather than picturing yourself getting in the car and going and like uh, firing up the excuse machine and playing the story of all the things you have to do to get to yoga and then your insecurities. Picture yourself after yoga having finished it, having been done with it and figure uh, and do that. Even during the workout, everything just like I just picture myself being done and how good it's it's going to feel. And again, this is stuff that I'm sure many of many of you already do something similar. But I started applying that more globally to um, more of my responsibilities. And what's happened is rather than having like this terrifying clown car of responsibilities that I'm afraid to open the door because for every one that I tackle, five more pop up and then there's five more waiting behind them crap that I haven't even thought of until I I finish something so even if I have a productive day my to-do list because I'm writing more crap down that's coming to me that I need to do is longer than when I started and this is hopeless and I realize it's just this to-do list is so terrifying so I started instead putting down this accomplishments list every time I do something throughout the day I just write down what I've done even when it's a small thing and then it feels like a little uh sense of accomplishment I I don't get off on big accomplishments or awards or like getting on tv or whatever but these little ones through the day I guess because it's what I'm bad at that's where I'm feeling really um a, a, a lot of a lot of progress so it's been uh, really, so far, really life-changing for me. I'm sure I'll plateau and dip and things will fall apart at any moment now or whatever could happen. But that's what's been working for now. And so that's, that's just a little, this is enough 35 minutes of a, a spiel. But these are the sorts of things that I want to kind of start sharing with at the end of the podcast. So you can kind of know, get, 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 get you up to speed with where I'm at right now. Because you don't know when a lot of these podcasts were actually recorded. I might be in a totally different headspace space and um and yeah and, and it's interesting for me to do so uh let me know what you think I, I love hearing your feedback and um those of you that listen all the way to the end especially now more than ever you are my favorites
Music brought to you this week by The Long Hunt. Those of you who listen all the way to the end of the end, it's getting a little creepy. Star Avenue, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.